Good morning. As Graham alluded to, I am Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here. It is so great to be together here on Easter Sunday. This is my first Easter with Calvary, and I'm just so excited to be here with you this morning. Yes. Yeah. And uh, just thanks to Graham, Danielle, and for Haley for reading this morning's passage. We're looking at John chapter 20, verses 11 to 31. So if you want, you can open your Bibles to that passage. There's some Bibles that are in your pews, or you can bring out your phone just as long as you know, turn off every other part of your phone except the Bible app. You're allowed that one. But I love Easter, don't you? I love Easter. I wake up on Easter morning with this great sense of anticipation and triumph, right? I go down to the kitchen and I play loud worship music and I sing it at the top of my lungs and I wake the family up. I didn't do it this year because, you know, I'm a little congested, but most Easter mornings I do that. Keith Green has some awesome Easter songs, just saying, right? Shout out Keith Green. Any of you old people out there like me? Yes, I see that hand. Right? On Easter morning, I forego a healthy breakfast, and I, I just gorge on this stuff called Pascha. So, yes, thank you. Yes, Pascha is this Easter sweetbread that my oma, my grandmother, and my mom would make. And it's just, it's like manna from heaven, right? It's just wonderful. You all can look forward to eating Pascha in the resurrection. So... Then we do this Easter egg hunt with my children and we head off to church where we sing more triumphal songs of Christ's victory and then afterwards we normally get together with extended family for a dinner where we celebrate and commemorate this best of holy days. Amen? Yes. But when we read the Gospels, Like we did this morning, we see that for the original followers of Jesus, this first Easter morning, it didn't feel so much like a joyful triumph, did it? They didn't wake up feeling victorious and full of hope. Rather, they felt defeated, full of fear, even hopeless. Yet amidst their troubles, something miraculous happens, right? Jesus shows up back from the grave, alive and well, actually better than ever, and uh, You know, he changes everything for them. And today, maybe some of us are feeling more like those original followers did on that first Easter morning. Maybe we're coming in this morning and we're feeling a little, uh, you know, we have a lack of hope. Maybe we're feeling full of anxiety or scared. Maybe we struggle with some doubts. And I believe that in the same way that he did for them on that original Easter morning, that Jesus, he wants to change things for us today too. Because the resurrected Christ, he transforms troubles into triumphs. We pick things up early on that first Easter morning with Mary Magdalene, one of a group of female disciples who followed and supported Jesus' ministry, and she is heading out to the tomb, we're told, in Luke chapter 24. She's got some spices because she's preparing to anoint his body. But when she gets there, the stone that was blocking the entrance to the tomb, it's been rolled away, and the body, it's gone. For Mary, it appears that someone has taken it, stolen his body, and this just adds insult to injury. You see, Mary loves Jesus. He healed her, right? He taught her. Jesus validated and cared for Mary as no one had ever done. You see, women back in that society, particularly women 
who were possessed by evil spirits like Mary was or had been, they were treated as second-class citizens at best. But Jesus, he had given Mary a future. And the angel in the passage asks Mary, why are you crying? And she responds, they have taken my Lord away, but not just taken his body. You see, when they took his life, they also stole his followers' hope and future. They have taken Mary's hope. They've taken her future. But then in verse 14, Jesus shows up and he changes everything, right? Mary doesn't recognize him at first. Perhaps he looks a little different in his resurrection body. Or maybe she's distraught and the tears in her eyes has this mistaken identity. So she thinks it's the gardener that is until he speaks her name. Mary. And when Jesus speaks her name, Not only does Mary recognize him, but more importantly, she is recognized by her Lord. You see, with all of her tears and her grief, her lost hope, her stolen future, in this moment, Mary is recognized by the resurrected Christ. And isn't that what we all want, right? For God to recognize us for him to recognize what we're going through, for God to see our grief, our lack of hope, right? For God to identify with us. And not just us as in like the people of the world, but I believe that each one of us, we long for God to identify intimately with us as individuals, for him to speak our name, for God to speak your name, for him to say to me, Dave. You see, the solution for Mary's trouble, it's not just this theology that states that God recognizes the plight of humans, though that's important. But Mary's troubles are transformed when she has this deeply personal encounter with the resurrected Christ. And you see, that's what changes us too. And so she has this encounter with Jesus, and her future is restored, her hope is renewed, and so she runs to the disciples with this great news that she has seen the Lord, but more importantly, her Lord sees her. And then the scene shifts to later on that evening. Fear has gripped the disciples' hearts, no doubt because they believe that the same tragic fate of Jesus may soon be theirs. The temple authorities will hunt them down and arrest them too. And so the disciples, they are scared and locked up inside in order to stay safe. Does that sound familiar to any of us? Locking things up inside in order to stay safe. You see, many of us struggle with fear and anxiety too. And in the face of it, it's in our nature as humans to either fight or to take flight. The fighters these days, they love to express their fear and anxiety as outrage and their favorite medium is social media. While others of us who fear, we can, it can cause us to retreat like these disciples did. And so we lock things up inside. We fear that by letting things out, that our vulnerability may expose us to greater danger, deeper hurt. And so we hide in order 
to protect ourselves. But yet, just like he did for Mary, Jesus shows up for these fearful disciples and he changes everything. It says that he appears in the room and doesn't use the door, mind you. He just appears in the room and he greets them. He says, peace be with you. Three times in this passage, he says that phrase, peace be with you. And so this greeting, peace be with you, it's this Hebrew word shalom, which is the standard Jewish greeting for the time. It still is standard today in Israel. It's kind of like if you were to go to Hawaii, you'd hear people say aloha. There you hear them say shalom. But see, Jesus, he's not just saying hi. The peace that is represented by shalom in the Bible, it's not just a lack of conflict like a ceasefire. It's not simply some sort of inner tranquility that a person achieves. Rather, Jesus' peace, it is whole and complete. It is life as God intended it, without conflict, sin, or sickness. It's a world living in harmony with one another, but not just between people, but also with creation. It's living in peace with yourself, too. But ultimately, and most importantly, it's peace between us and God. And only Jesus can offer these scared disciples this opportunity to exchange their fear and anxiety for his peace. Because his work on the cross, it solidifies his kingdom of peace's everlasting reign. Colossians 1 tells us, For God was pleased to have all the fullness, all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So when Jesus says to his disciples, peace be with you, this isn't just some sort of wishful thinking, but this is a blessing and a promise, right, of what has already begun and what is going to come in full one day. He is the king of peace who invites you and I to also exchange our anxiety and our fear for his peace as we encounter him. Philippians 4, 5 to 8 tells us how we do this. It says that the resurrected Christ transforms our troubles into triumphs, specifically our anxiety for peace, saying that the Lord is near. So don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and that the peace of God, which transcends all understandings, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. So God is near to us. And we make this great exchange that in his presence, we present to him our fears, our prayers, and our petitions. And then he will give us his peace. You see, when Jesus met with his disciples in that locked room, it was his nearness, his personal presence that exchanged their anxiety for his peace, their fear for joy. But notice that their circumstances didn't necessarily change, right? They still faced the same threats after their encounter with Jesus that they did before, right? And the same can be true for us. Jesus often meets us in the middle of our troubles rather than just rescuing us from him. But his presence, it makes all the difference, right? He said to his followers in John chapter 16, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble, but you can take heart because I have overcome the world. And so 
It's through Christ and through being near to him in his presence that we can have peace. And then what's more in this passage in verse 22, it says that Jesus brings a gift to his disciples. It says that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You thought about that? He breathed on them. It's awkward, isn't it? It's like cringeworthy, right? Yeah. But the word for breathe is the Hebrew word ruach, right? In the scriptures, it's symbolic. It's the word for breath or wind, but it's also for the spirit, this divine force and the influence of God, right? This breath, this ruach is the same one that we read about all the way back in Genesis at the very beginning, in chapter 2, verse 7, where it says that God formed the human out of the ground and that it was the breath of God that gave the human its first life. It brought it to life. And then we even read in the prophet Ezekiel, right? God gives Ezekiel this great vision. He goes out and he sees all these dead bones, but it is the ruach, the breath of God that brings these bones back to life, right? It wraps them with flesh, What was once dead now has new life. And this breath of God, this divine life-giving energy, his Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of Jesus who also breathes into us life, right? Who raises us up to new life when our mortal bodies will fail us. So we pray, Jesus, please breathe on us. Breathe your life-giving Spirit in us too. Amen? Yeah. So you see, the resurrected Christ, he transformed the disciples' troubles into triumph when he exchanged their fear for his peace, when he breathed new life into them, filling them with his Holy Spirit. But this account tells us that not everyone was there in order to experience that transformative encounter. Poor Thomas, he was missing. And the others tell him all about it, but he's a cynic, right? He's, he's skeptical. Do you blame him? I don't. I think if I were in Thomas's shoes, I think I would be like him if I was his, in, in his position. But you see, I don't think it's only doubt that plagues Thomas. I think it's also desire that plagues him, right? I think he wants to see what they saw too. And honestly, so do I. More than anything else, I want to see Jesus. I want Jesus to appear to me. I would love Jesus to be here in our presence right now personally because I think that would make everything way better. I don't think Thomas wants to doubt. I think he wants to believe more than anything else But the thing is about doubt, it's like a virus. And if we know anything about viruses, we know that they are infectious. And if it's not dealt with swiftly, that just a little bit can contaminate the whole soul. The other thing about Thomas's disbelief is that the passage says he he plays a role in choosing it. He says, I will not believe. And then he even chooses the terms by which his disbelief must be overcome. He says that he wants proof. He says, unless I see the nail marks, unless I put my hands in his side, I will not believe. And this same kind of doubt that infects Thomas can sometimes infect us too. Perhaps we're tempted to choose the 
the terms of faith by which we will believe, right? Like if God were good, well then, then we would never have had this pandemic. Or I will believe if God heals my dad of cancer. You see, most of us are a lot more like Thomas than we would care to admit. We're also hurting. We can be afflicted by doubt as well, and we just really need Jesus to show up. And he does, right? He, just like he does for Mary, and then he does for the disciples, Jesus shows up for Thomas, offering him exactly what he asked for. He says to him, here's the chance. Touch the wounds. Put your hand on my side. And Thomas doesn't do it. Why not? Here's his chance. This is exactly what he asked for. Why doesn't he do it? I think he discovers that he doesn't need to in that moment because the mere presence of the resurrected Christ, it transforms Thomas's doubt into faith. It's another trouble transformed into a triumph. And I think that this encounter can leave us wishing that we were Thomas, right, with proof. But proof doesn't necessitate belief. Proof doesn't equal trust. Besides, what's proof for one person in our day is conspiracy for another person. After Jesus rose from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15 says he appeared to more than 500 people. And I'm sure that within those numbers, that even some of them, after time had passed, that they had some struggles, right? They look back, what, what was it that we really saw? Did that really happen? You see, remember, Thomas, he chooses what he will believe when he says, I will not believe unless. And then even Jesus tells him and us that we have some control over our doubt and over our faith when Jesus says, in verse 27, stop doubting, believe. Jesus says we have some measure of control over this. You see, when it comes to faith, we have a choice. And in order to stop the plague of doubt in its tracks, we need to choose belief. But it's not going to be proof that gets us there. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. See, what each one of us needs more than anything else is an encounter with a resurrected Christ. And it's an encounter with Jesus outside of that tomb that transforms Mary's despair and grief into hope, right? It was this intimate gathering with him in that locked room that exchanges the disciples' anxiety for peace. And it's an impersonal confrontation with the resurrected Christ that allows Thomas here to swap his doubt for faith. It's in an encounter with Jesus. It's where we hear him speak our name, knowing that he sees us, knowing that he understands what we are going through. It's in an encounter with Jesus where he breathes on us his life-giving spirit. You see, Thomas was blessed that Jesus appeared to him in the way that he did. But in verse 29 of our passage, Jesus alludes to the fact that once he ascends to heaven, there will be others who will believe. Even though they won't see him with their eyes, they too will be blessed. That's us. 
Yeah, like that's us. Not only can we have faith, but we can also encounter the resurrected Christ. And we too can have our troubles transformed into triumphs too. See, all throughout the Bible, there are verses like Psalm 145, which say, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over those who love them. So he draws near to us. He sees our troubles and our struggles. James 4.8 says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. So this is an invitation to each one of us. If we draw near to God, he will meet you. He wants to meet you. He wants to hear about what you're going through. He wants to save you, to transform your troubles into triumphs as well. Someday, we will all be in God's presence Someday we will be face to face with Jesus, but until that time, we can still draw to God. And we can do it in several ways. This morning, I drew near to my Lord by spending time with him, with reading his word, right? And, and he speaks to me through that. I also pray and spend time in silence, trying to listen to his voice in meditation. We draw near to God when we gather together in the body of Christ, with other believers, where we hear encouragement, where we can be prayed for. You know, in these ways, our spirits connect with God's. Jesus said in John 4, he said, A time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And so God is calling each one of us to come to meet with him, to have personal encounters with him where he can transform our lives. In the final verses of chapter 20 of John, the apostle John, he writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. I wish they were. But he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing that you may have life in his name. So John is telling us the whole reason he set to this task of writing his gospel is that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the rescuer, the rescuer of the world, and that we can have life in his name. That by believing, we can be rescued from sin and death we can have peace with God and everlasting life. This is great news. This is the greatest transformation of all. That we can be rescued from sin and death and those troubles can be transformed into triumphs when we put our hope and faith in Jesus. And you know, if you are with us this morning and this is, you've never done that before, I would invite you to put your hope in Christ. Just simply pray, Jesus, I want, to put, I want to follow you for the rest of my life. I am putting my hope in you. And if that's your prayer this morning, we just welcome you into the family of God. And we just encourage you to come speak to me or to Pastor Reese or any of us this morning. And we would love to pray with you and to help you on those next steps. You know, there's one last thing in this story that's always piqued my interest. And maybe it has yours as well. It's Jesus' resurrection body, right? In some ways, it's similar to ours, like he can be touched. We see later on that he can, he can eat food, which I'm really grateful for, right? 
But in other ways, it's, it's different, right? It doesn't experience the sickness and decay that our bodies go through. And he can just appear in rooms without having to break down locked doors. But what gets me is that he still has the wounds. He still bears the mark of this torture. These reminders of death. Why are they still there? I think it's because these two have been transformed by the resurrection. I think they are no longer simply reminders of death, but they are symbols of his prevailing. They are his victory, overcoming fear and temptation to doubt, overcoming sin and death. These are Christ's trophies of his triumph. And I also have this massive scar on my chest. It's a reminder of the time in my early 20s when I had cancer. And when I look in the mirror and I see this scar, it's a reminder to me of the temptation that I had to doubt. The temptation I had to give in to fear and to become hopeless in that time. And I'm so thankful to say, you know, Andrew and I, we, we didn't give in to those temptations. And though we may not have been these pillars of strength during that time, we held on to whatever straws of hope and belief and faith that we had. But you know, my scar isn't just a reminder of, of that sickness, of disease. It's also a reminder for me of how Jesus met with us intimately in that difficult time. It reminds me of God's faithfulness, of his goodness, and of his healing power. And sometimes I think that that scar may possibly be on my resurrection body as well when I enter God's kingdom. Maybe not, but if it is, honestly, I'm totally okay with that. Because like Christ's wounds, our scars can also become symbols of God's faithfulness, right? Of what we've been able to overcome by his power. They can be trophies of these troubles transformed into triumphs because of the victory that you and I have gained through Christ's death and his resurrection. You see, there are so many things in this life that can wound us, leaving us with scars. But our scars no longer have to be these reminders of just how bad things can get in this world or even how fragile we are. They can become symbols of Christ's triumphant victory over sin and death and evil, not just for the world, but for you and for me. And so I pray that we would have a wonderful celebration this Easter. I pray that we would also make time and space to intimately connect with the resurrected Christ. Because it says in his word that if we draw near to him, he will show up. And his presence, it transforms everything. Would you stand with me and pray? Jesus, we celebrate your victory over sin, death, and the grave. We are so grateful that we get to participate in your glorious victory, that we no longer have to fear death, but we can sing with great gusto that, that death has been defeated. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Because it's not on us anymore because of what Jesus has done. 
We are so thankful for your great love for us, Father, and for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would just continue to do a transformative work in our hearts and in our lives together as a church community so that we may also be a light to the people in this city in which we live, that they may come to know this great hope and victory that we have in Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. He is risen. Amen. Indeed.